0: In the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, a group of Southern Californians turned to smuggling to finance and build a counterculture community. They wanted their own land, and to get that land, they needed a steady source of income. Since they knew the marijuana and LSD business from the consumer side, it wasn't too much of a leap to become suppliers as well. With a name that reflected the atmosphere of the time and the group's unique history, Their story fits perfectly into the hazy, smoky memory of a time when the phrase, peace and love, signaled their guiding principle. They just wanted to enjoy life, and to do so without having to live in the straight world. This group that was based in California and later in Hawaii, has one of the more intriguing backstories of the communal groups of that era. In this episode, we'll take a look at one of the members of the last years of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love a pilot whose path crossed with his pursuer one too many times. And in this episode, you'll hear the story of another aviator, a prolific smuggler pilot who charmed almost everyone he met with his charisma, good looks, and his skills as a pilot. Before everything fell apart for him, he was living the good life. To tell his story, we have a special guest presenter, aviation legend, Patty Wagstaff. The story of how the Brotherhood of Eternal Love began is rooted in the hippie culture of California in the mid-1960s, when pot and LSD were the drugs of choice. How the Brotherhood was founded is reasonably well-documented. As the legend goes, in Southern California, John Griggs and a group of his friends were small-time criminals who underwent a sudden and profound transformation, a transformation from being thieves to becoming enlightened and it all happened during one long night. While there are differing versions of whether Griggs and his friends were members of a motorcycle gang, or simply that a few of them had motorbikes, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love came to be after the group raided a party held by a well-to-do film producer and stole a large amount of LSD. Then they went to a remote area and liberally dosed themselves with the hallucinogen. After a night spent looking inward, they were never the same. They renounced petty crime and returned the remainder of the LSD to its owner. Over time, they created several communes and made their living selling hash from Afghanistan, while on a mission to give away millions of doses of their signature drug, Tabs of Orange Sunshine LSD. One famous story of that effort was the dropping of thousands of doses of the drug from a Cessna flying over a music festival. John Griggs died of an overdose in the late 60s, and over the years, members came and went. After a time, they branched out to a location in Hawaii, and that was where in the final years of the organization as a true drug smuggling force, the DEA started investigating pilot Randy Garrett. In the late 70s, DEA agent Kelly Snyder was serving in Hawaii, and he recalls how the investigation of Garrett would lead to a coincidence that would bind Snyder and Garrett together forever.
1: In the years... uh I'm guessing somewhere around 1977 and 78, uh, the Brotherhood of Eternal Love was an existing smuggling organization based out of California and Hawaii. I think its origination was based out of California originally. I um, came across the case and we did controlled deliveries where we would intercept a drug shipment. And then in a controlled environment, we would Uh, control the delivery to whoever the recipient was. And in one of the cases, it was to a group of Brotherhood uh, members uh, that were in Maui, uh, one of the islands off the chain. And uh, that was the first time I had ever heard the name or seen the name Randy Garrett. He wasn't actually involved in that particular shipment that we had seized and arrested all of those members. Uh, But that was the first time I had seen his name. So an offshoot of that investigation uh, made me zero in on Randy Garrett, who at the time was living both in Maui and uh, on Oahu. So I started working on him and made contact with him on numerous occasions um, for various reasons, just um, uh, stopping him on the freeway, basically just a thorn in his side to let him know that we knew that he was a drug dealer.
0: As Snyder was investigating Garrett, Garrett moved from Hawaii to near Louisville, Kentucky, where he bought land and set up a new smuggling operation. By coincidence, in 1982, Agent Snyder was transferred to Louisville, where he became the head agent in that area.
1: Then I got transferred um, out of Hawaii to Louisville, Kentucky, Within six or eight months, uh, Randy's name came up, and I don't remember exactly how it came up, but uh, um, we started investigating him at that particular time, and I believe uh, one of my agents, um, Rick Sanders, was the case agent on it, but obviously I had a personal interest just because of my interaction with Randy in, in uh, Hawaii. And then the irony to all of this is when we finally did arrest him, um, and I believe it was in 1983 or close to 1984, uh, he deliberately asked whether or not I had followed him from Hawaii to Kentucky just to work on him alone, which was uh, not the truth. I got transferred to Louisville uh, to take over the agent in charge position there.
0: DEA agent and helicopter pilot Rick Sanders was on one of his first postings at the time. Later, he held senior positions in DEA offices, became the commissioner of the State Police of Kentucky, and is now the chief of police in Jeffersontown, Kentucky. But in the early 1980s, the investigation of Randy Garrett was one of Sanders' first major cases.
2: Being a young agent in Louisville, I'm I'm trying to to learn as much as I can and and make a difference, and I got the reading some of the old case files and uh, identified Randall Garrett as one of our biggest uh, smugglers in the area. And uh, being a pilot myself, I was particularly interested in that and uh, learned that he had a strip, a grass strip out in Mount Eden, Kentucky, which is in Shelby County. And I visited uh, the grass strip. And and he also had a house that he had built there on the property with uh, what looked like a, a, a tower coming out of the top of it. Uh, just a small uh, observation post, basically. About the same time, uh, a gentleman came into the office and wanted to uh, to cooperate with us and tell us about the Randall Garrett case. And I met that informant at the time, and uh, he, he was a pilot, commercial pilot, and was flying on the side uh, for, for Randall Garrett. I, I think really either his conscience got to him or he thought we were closer than we were, but uh, he started cooperating. So he and I became uh, uh, working together, and uh, he started telling me about the trips that Randall Garrett had made uh, from Belize, Central America, into Kentucky. There would be an aircraft fly from from Louisville down to Belize, and and this gentleman I'm talking about flew several of those trips. Uh, They would be met on the airstrip by the Belizeans and or Colombians. They would load the plane with Colombian marijuana and then fly it back into Kentucky. Uh, very fascinating to listen to the stories. As I said, being a pilot myself, you know, we're very conscious of, of fuel. And all those things were taught in aviation training. And that really was out the door with these guys. Uh, I can't recall what kind of airplane it was, but they had, they had internal fuel bl- uh, bladders inside the airplane. And there was one trip that they made. This was actually to Jamaica. To, on the final approach uh, into Jamaica, they ran out of fuel. And Randall Garrett, who was his co-pilot or his uh, passenger, was in the back of this airplane rolling the fuel bladder up, the rubber fuel bladder, trying to get every ounce of fuel out of it, and uh, they came up short. And they ended up, uh, uh, the engines quit prior to being on final and ended up crashing down there. But that was one of many stories that he was telling about uh, the escapades. Randall Garrett was a major player here, uh, bringing in lots of, tons of marijuana.
0: Kelly Snyder picks up the story of how the DEA's investigation of Randy Garrett's smuggling flights ended with a raid on Garrett's property and the seizure of everything he owned. A seizure that would leave Garrett's family homeless. That crisis led to a critical decision by Garrett and an eventual act of kindness from an unlikely source.
1: He had put in a landing strip and a uh, uh, he had, I think, at least one airplane if not two actually built a a tower, almost like a uh, FAA tower, on the property close to the airstrip. So we started concentrating on him along with his other associates and uh, co-conspirators and discovered that he was flying loads in and out of Kentucky and using that his personal airstrip as his uh, distribution point approximately a year after we discovered uh that he had moved there and was doing the smuggling routine that he uh you know basically was with the brotherhood of eternal love in Hawaii uh we started concentrating and uh and spending a lot of time and eventually got enough evidence to allow us to do a search warrant on his property along with the search warrant we were given authority by the US attorney's office to seize all of his property and his assets. At the time that we did the search warrant and um, raided his property, his wife and two children were there. Randy was gone. I believe he was out of town. I told uh, Mrs. Garrett, I said, you know, if you have an opportunity to call your husband, Randy, I said, just letting know that we're here and this is what we're doing. Then she did. And About maybe four hours later, after the search was completed, I advised her that the property was now the ownership of the U.S. government and that we were seizing all of her property, her animals, and that she would have to leave the property and find another place to live. She did, in fact, leave the property, and it was somewhat of a sad sight because you're watching a woman walking down the driveway of a property that's approximately a 1,000 feet long uh, on a road, leaving her house, heading towards a main highway. And she's carrying a suitcase, one child in her arms, and then the other one was walking beside her, holding onto the suitcase. And it was sort of a sad thing to see, but uh, it was just part of the job that we had to complete. And the property was now ours, and of course, we couldn't let her stay on it. So about 45 minutes later, I received a phone call at the house, and it was Randy. And he said he needed to talk to um, me, so the phone was given to me, said, Who is this? He said, My name's Randy Garrett, and I know it's you, Kelly, so tell me what you need. And I said, Well, Randy, what we need is 100% cooperation. We have an arrest warrant for you. You're going to be arrested so i would strongly suggest you find a way to turn yourself in the sooner the better and he stated just tell me what you need you can't let my wife and children be homeless they're literally at my neighbor's residence and they have no place to go and i said well if you'll give me your 100% cooperation i'll check with the us attorney's office and the marshal's service and allow her to stay into the house But I gave him the ultimatum. I said, once we catch you in a lie or you decide you're not going to cooperate, the same thing applies. You'll be in jail and she'll be on the street with the children. He started cooperating 100%. And I mean, not once did he lie. Not once did he give us information that was false. And uh, he held up his side of the bargain. I believe the end result was he received uh, 10 years in prison. Ironically, shortly thereafter, I received a phone call. uh, I believe it was about, I'm going to guess about a year after he went to prison. And he stated that he had um, some kind of terminal cancer. I believe it was uh, pancreatic cancer. And he asked me if he could be released from prison to die at home. And I said, well, that's something that is nothing that I can do because I don't have that kind of power. And he asked if I would go to the judge and see if the judge would authorize his release. After considerable uh, thinking about this and based on the fact that he did exactly what I asked him to do, uh, I did go to the judge. The judge did sign a release order once I had confirmed that he did have terminal cancer. He was released from prison went back to his home in Shelbyville and approximately eight to ten months later died there. It actually was a fairly good feeling, uh, even though, you know, I didn't have really any feelings for drug dealers. Uh, It was just something that he did everything he was asked to do, seemed like he had somewhat turned his life around, somewhat on purpose and somewhat because of what we did to him.
0: Before Randy Garrett's death, he had undergone his own transformation. To save his home so that his wife and children would have a place to live while he served his time, Garrett had testified against a number of people involved in smuggling marijuana from Belize to Kentucky. As many as 20 of his co-conspirators were convicted, making it easier for Kelly Snyder to become his advocate for a compassionate release from prison.
1: But then the end result was he was able to get his family's affairs in order to where they could exist and live on the farm and just go through the rest of their life, uh, unfortunately, without Randy, but uh, uh, that's somewhat, you know, the nature of the beast when you're involved in drugs and then, you know, you either have a choice of uh, turning yourself around or just letting nature take its course, which in this case, uh, both of those things happened.
0: When Fly By Night returns, you'll hear of another pilot whose skills as a flying smuggler were in high demand. And we'll have someone special to tell that story. For this next story, we'll depart from our usual approach and have a special guest presenter tell the strange tale of a pilot who seemed to have it all and whose end has left almost as many questions as answers. To share his story, we welcome a pilot who is a three-time National Aerobatic Champion a woman whose plane has been on display for years in the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum and who is an inductee in the National Aviation Hall of Fame. Our guest presenter is Patty Waxstaff.
3: From the beginning, his aviation friends called him a natural pilot, even gifted. Being known as gifted was the thread that ran through the life of Wallace Thrasher. In high school, he was an athlete who was so adept at eluding tackles on the football field He was given the nickname Squirrel. People liked and trusted him. They liked how he put them at ease, and they admired his good looks. With his blue eyes and full head of wavy hair, some said he had movie star looks. It would have been easy to say Wally Thrasher stood out because he grew up in a small town in Pulaski, Virginia in the New River Valley. But it's likely that Wally Thrasher would have stood out anywhere because that's what he did wherever he went including when flying took him from Virginia to a career as a drug-running pilot. But before flying drugs became his work, Thrasher discovered that he was a natural at another important skill, selling. In his hometown, he started by selling burial plots, then clothing, and even opened up his own clothing store in Radford, Virginia in the late 60s. Stores like his were called head shops then, with clothing more often seen on the West Coast and with pipes and smoking paraphernalia in the back. The hydraulic Buffalo catered to what had to be a relatively small customer base of Virginia hippies in 1969. Learning to fly during that time, Thrasher was, according to his instructor, a truly natural pilot. But he was also one who took flying seriously, devouring instruction manuals and earning his first pilot certificate in a short time. He moved to North Carolina, where he became a top aircraft salesman for Piedmont Aviation, and then on to Florida, where he took on a variety of flying jobs. And it was in Florida that this young pilot was first exposed to the riches that flying drugs could bring. And from that time on, pilot Wally Thresher was beyond the point of no return. For someone whose personality, charm, good looks and skills had paved the way to a good life. The two years ending in October of 1976 were hell on earth. On September 4, 1974, when both engines began to fail, Thrasher and his associate, Louis Jones, were forced to land Thrasher's Beach 18 on a road in Mexico. They survived and so did the 1,500 pounds of marijuana which landed them in a Mexican prison. According to accounts from Thrasher, During their two years in captivity, they were threatened and tortured, released only after friends in Florida raised enough money to buy their freedom. After a period of recovery from severe weight loss and infections, Thrasher returned to flying and, for a while, the flights were all legal. At first he turned down offers for drug runs until he finally gave in to what was supposed to be a one-time run from Columbia to Florida. But that run netted him what was then the huge sum of $100,000, and during 1977, Wally Thresher flew numerous smuggling runs from Columbia into the Fort Lauderdale Executive Airport. Upon arrival there, he would taxi directly to the hangar of a well-respected local business, one that appeared legal to the public. Flush with cash, Thrasher met a young woman working at a counter at an airport business and was immediately smitten. He introduced himself using a false identity he used as a cover and didn't share the fact that he was 17 years her senior. But it wasn't long before Olga Wright was just as smitten and began to enjoy the lifestyle that spending time with Thrasher could bring. They married, bought a house in Boca, and began to raise a family. And for most of that time, Thrasher continued his career as a marijuana smuggler and continued to put aside large sums of cash. A visit with Olga to his childhood home in Virginia led to a decision to buy land there and to eventually build a large home on the edge of the Jefferson National Forest. And of course, he paid for it all with cash. For most of the time, Florida was still home for the Thrasher's and the Virginia house was a vacation getaway. But in early 1983, they decided to leave Florida with its high level of smuggling activity and its intense concentration of anti-smuggling law enforcement. And that move begins the tale of how everything came crashing down for Wally Thrasher, both figuratively and literally. And when it did, things happened fast. The end began on October 17, 1984, with the crash of a single-engine Beechcraft Bonanza just miles from the Thrasher's home. That crash threatened to ensnare him because not only would authorities find 570 pounds of pot and a body burned beyond recognition in the plane, they would soon establish that the plane belonged to Thrasher. Later, Olga would testify that on the night of the crash, her husband was waiting at the nearby New River Airport for his plane to arrive at the conclusion of a long flight from Belize. At her home, she took a call intended for Wally and relayed the urgent message to him at the airport. Soon, he returned home with a seriously injured and bloody man named Nelson King, who had survived the crash and found his way to a phone at a service station. Olga testified that she did what she could for King and that later Wally drove King to a hospital in Florida, but not before staging a motorcycle accident as the cause of King's injuries. King had flown with Thrasher a number of times on smuggling runs to and from Belize, but this failed flight had been King's first trip on his own as the pilot. With him that night was area resident, Mark Bailey, who died in the crash. Nelson King would come back into the story later, but for now, and with law enforcement certain to close in, Wally Thrasher planned to leave Virginia for Belize, and it's at this point that the myth of Thrasher's disappearance begins. Over the next few days, Thrasher would discover that not only had King crashed his airplane, a crash that had cost the life of Mark Bailey, King had also pocketed the original $250,000 Thrasher had sent to Belize to pay for the load. So in an effort to raise cash to pay that debt, he tried to sell a thousand pounds of pot he'd stored in Virginia, but that was stolen from him while being transported and Wally Thrasher now found himself in a tough spot. He decided that his only option was to meet with his supplier in Belize to explain that King had stolen the $250,000 intended to pay for the original load and to beg the supplier to front him a new load so he could raise money for both shipments. For the trip to Belize, Wally Thrasher had borrowed a Piper Navajo, a fast twin-engine airplane, and it was only a few days later that his wife Olga, frantic that he'd not checked in, received a call from an associate of Wally's in Florida. The caller introduced himself and relayed the news that her husband had died in the crash of the plane at an airstrip in Belize, saying that this was confirmed by another pilot who had brought back some personal effects, including Wally's engraved gold wedding band. The wedding band had been one of just a few items that survived an intense fire when the fully fueled plane, with its full load of marijuana, had crashed on takeoff as Thrasher headed back to Virginia. Later, the friend from Florida would travel to Virginia to hand deliver the ring to Olga, again assuring her that an eyewitness had confirmed that it was Wally who had died in the crash. But for many people, including members of law enforcement who'd been investigating Thrasher's flights for a while, the story didn't quite ring true. The doubters tended to fall into two camps, those who believed he was still alive and had faked his own death, a theory pushed by several TV shows and supported by reported sightings of a man who matched his description, especially the striking blue eyes. But none of those sightings were ever confirmed. And there were those who felt that Thrasher had been killed, just not that day and not at that airstrip. Instead. They theorized he'd been murdered by a supplier in Belize because of the $250,000 debt. Back in Virginia, Olga Thrasher was charged with numerous offenses related to her husband's smuggling operation, and for a while was even charged with an attempt to abduct Nelson King to find out what he knew about Thrasher's disappearance or death. But after her full cooperation with investigators and prosecutors, and her willing testimony that helped convict a large group of American and Colombian smugglers, Olga was given full immunity. She did lose her homes in Florida and Virginia, along with most other possessions. And one way or the other, she did lose her husband. And though most federal investigators were convinced by 1990 that Thrasher was dead, it would take 30 years before all charges against him were dropped. Even so, one nagging question kept alive the possibility that Wally Thrasher didn't die on that runway in Belize. It was the condition of the burned airplane compared to the condition of the wedding band delivered to Olga. The report from the eyewitness was clear that the airplane had burned so fiercely that left on the ground was mostly the rough outline of the plane, an outline defined by traces of molten aluminum. That would have meant the fire had burned well beyond the temperature of the melting point of the plane's structure. Aluminum and aluminum alloys of the type that made up most of the plane begin to melt at between 865 and 1240 degrees Fahrenheit. But if the eyewitness story is true, the fire didn't just melt the plane, it practically vaporized it, implying that it burned at a much higher temperature gold melts at 1943 degrees fahrenheit while well, that makes it possible that the ring with its intricate open design could have survived the ring was found in pristine condition not misshapen at all and with its inscription as clear and defined as the day it was engraved and with that doubt was created doubt that remains until today
0: Special thanks to Patty Wagstaff for telling the story of pilot Wally Thrasher. You'll find a link to Patty's aerobatic training facility in the notes for Episode 8 at the show's website, flybynightpodcast.com. And for a much more detailed look at the life of pilot Wally Thrasher, check out the book, Chasing the Squirrel, by author Ron Peterson, Jr. You'll find a link to the book in the show notes for Episode 8 as well. And if you're looking for information on the long, strange trip of the Brotherhood of Eternal Love, you'll find a link in the episode notes also. Just be aware, you'll be descending into a serious internet rabbit hole. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly by Night. Fly By Night is brought to you by Midnight Flyer Media. Theme music is Darker by Henrik Anderson with additional music by Abe Stites. Show art is by Einy, with additional design by Abe Stites. The show is produced and hosted by Charles Stites with editing by Abe Stites and additional audio support by Resonate Recordings. If you like what you hear, please leave a rating and a review and subscribe to Fly By Night wherever you get your podcasts. For photos and more on the key players in each episode, visit flybynightpodcast.com.